I'm conscious we're in a bit of a sort of an emotional shift in the service. We've been thinking about uh, Prince Philip, remembering him. We're now moving to a, a new sermon series about the, the Song of Songs. Um, but let me just say, I mean, Prince Philip, his loyalty, his steadfastness towards uh, our queen, human marriage being a picture of the divine marriage between Christ and the church. So I think there's a wonderful fit in here, and I ask you to bear that in mind as we come to uh, this book of the Bible now. So let me pray for us and ask for the Spirit to guide us and help us and teach us and excite us by this very passionate book of the Bible, the Song of Songs. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you so much indeed for your word, the Bible. We thank you so much that you speak to each of us through it today as we hear it read, as we hear it taught, as we hear it preached, and there's a wonderful richness to your word, um, a wonderful variety, different genres, and as we come to this book, please, Father, would you help us to hear your voice. Please, would you teach us your wisdom uh, when it comes to sexual intimacy within marriage, and we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Okay, look, I'm going to do something a little bit different for those of you who are regulars here, who are used to hearing me um, preach. There's going to be no introduction, there's going to be no two points or three points based on the structure. I'm just going to dive straight in to Song of Songs and just go verse by verse. There are only four of them. It might feel a little bit disorientating for you, particularly those who like to know where you're going, like to have some structure. Um, It's pretty disorientating for me, but that is often how love works when you are swept up off your feet, when your heart begins to flutter, and you feel the passion inside, so you have your breath taken away as one modern love song, but it can be disorientating. You go, ah, where am I, where am I, where am I going? And this book of the Bible wants you to feel that sensation, feel the power, the passion of love, get lost in it. And as we do so, grasp at an even deeper level God's incomparable and faithful love towards us. So the Song of Songs, it needs to be felt, not just analyzed. This is poetry, it's poetic song, and I invite you to work with it, let your heart's imaginations be captured by it. If this feels too much for you already, that is good. That is the point. Don't worry, there will be three clear applications I think, towards the end. So there is some some structure to it. Verse 1, the opening sentence, Solomon's Song of Songs. Is this book written by Solomon? Is this book written to Solomon? Is this Solomon's favorite love song of all? We don't know. It's ambiguous. That is how poetry works. Did you hear how it sounds? Solomon's Song of Songs. I'm a mathematician by background. I have to admit, I'm not the best at appreciating the finer parts of poetry. This is called assonance. Similar sounding consonants. Solomon's Song of Songs. We might say something today like sausages sizzling in a saucepan the sweltering steam in a sauna. Do you feel the heat radiating from this opening sentence of this book of the Bible? Arguably the hottest book in the Bible. 
Verse 2, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. This is where the heat is coming from. This woman's passionate desire to be kissed by her man. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Who is this woman? Who is this man? How did they meet? What's their story? We don't know. That's the point. Just go with the flow. Are you feeling it? You know when you come across two lovers passionately kissing in public and parents are scrambling to cover their children's eyes and someone else shouts, get a room! That is what is going on here. That is what this woman wants. Intimacy. Connection. At as deep as level as possible. This is no peck on the cheek. This is a lover's kiss. She wants to be touched and caressed with his lips, perhaps not just on her mouth. I know men tend to think of sexual intimacy as the mere act of intercourse itself. Women know that sexual intimacy starts much earlier than that. Verse 2 continues, For your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Now we get to taste and smell this man's love. Wine such a rich metaphor in the Bible. Some of you will know about its intoxicating effect. But the Bible also say that, says that wine gladdens the heart, Psalm 104. It symbolizes pleasure. It's one of, one of earth's greatest delights. And yet this man's love tastes even more delightful than that. Back then, before deodorants and antiperspirants, men would have worn perfume to mask their natural body odor, and as the two mixed together, it would have produced a scent that is uniquely uh, his, and she loves it. As she breathes it in, oh, to be with him. A guy called Dr. Wilhelm Fleiss back in the 19th century classified the nose as the body's most potent sex organ, which is probably putting it too strongly. But sexual desire, sexual attraction certainly involves all our senses, our tastes, our smells. But it's not just the physical, verse 3. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the young women love you. In the Bible, one's name represents one's character. There's this wonderful little line in 1 Samuel 25 about Nabal. We're told he is just like his name. His name means full, and folly goes with him. But to have a name that is esteemed, to have a, a reputation that, that spreads like perfume, so pleasing is it that, that men respect you and, and women love you, this is who this man is. And this woman knows it about him. You know the way people sometimes say, what does she see in him? 
Now, often put in a negative way. There is nothing about this here. Here is a man of noble character. Here is a man of integrity. And she loves him for it. Verse four. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. The temperature's rising. The anticipation is overwhelming. As she contemplates his physicality, his personality, let the king bring me into his chambers. Now, there's a lot of debate in the commentaries about when exactly this is all happening. Are they betrothed? Are they married? Is this their wedding night? Some commentators think there is a chronology to the book betrothal, wedding night, consummation, the marriage thereafter. Others actually, going with the poetry, see Song of Songs as a cycle, um, a number of poetic cycles around the same theme of marital love and sexual intimacy within marriage. It's hard to say which of the two it is, but one thing we can say for sure, given the cultural context of the time, is that any reference to actual sexual intimacy taking place would have happened within the safe and secure bounds of marriage, which is the consistent message of the Bible from start to finish. And so if these opening verses are during the betrothal stage, then we are listening here to her longing, her waiting, her deep desire to consummate their love on her wedding night. But if this is indeed their wedding night, which is where I tend to lean, then finally the waiting is over and she can awaken and arouse her love. Let the king bring me into his chambers. Not necessarily a literal king, by the way, more likely a metaphorical king, a king to her. Did you know that the Orthodox Church today, um, in the Orthodox Church today, um, they call the bride and groom a queen and king? I, d I didn't know that. Did you know that? Some nods of the head. I just found it out this week uh, whilst preparing this sermon. The Orthodox priest places a crown on the groom's head. And everyone around him congratulates him as king. Because to her, she is his king. This is no tacky shotgun wedding in Vegas. This is no drunken one-night stand around the back of a nightclub. This is something regal, dignified, majestic, as metaphorical king and queen enter the bedroom together for the first time. And like some idyllic heavenly chorus, we finish verse four with their friends rejoicing. We rejoice and delight in you. We will praise your love more than wine. You've done it. You've waited. You're there. Just this exaltation for the joy and beauty of sexual intimacy within marriage. Welcome, everyone, to the Song of Songs. Now, at this point, you say, Mark, how on earth does this apply to us today? I'm not married, Mark. I might never get married. I'm divorced. I'm widowed. You're thinking to yourselves, what has sexual intimacy within marriage got to do with me today? 
Okay, here are three potential answers, at least three, to that question. And I hope we can see why these verses are therefore relevant to all of us today. First, sexual desire in the right context is exalted. In previous generations, it was scandalous for a woman to show enthusiasm for losing her virginity, which is where the tradition of the groom carrying the bride over the threshold comes from, him taking the initiative. But look at how this book of the Bible starts with the woman freely expressing her sexual desire for the groom. Starts with her voice, not the man's. And in fact, the majority of the song is her voice, 53% female, 34% male. The rest, the chorus, all the headings. That would have been absolutely unheard of at the time. To put such emphasis and focus on the female voice and female desire. And I hope, well, I hope that shows you just how affirming the Bible is of women, certainly when it comes to sexual desire and intimacy. There is nothing wrong in and of itself with sexual desire. God has made us sexual beings. He wants us to express our sexual desire in the right context, and it is exalted here, not frowned upon. Yes, sexual desire can be distorted and twisted. We live in a fallen, broken world. We have sinful hearts that draw us away from God's good design. And so we need to be very careful to battle hard against sexual desire in the wrong context. But in the right context, oh my goodness, do we celebrate it like this? Do we exalt it like this? In God's eyes, it is such good news. Historically, the church has erred in two ways when it comes to sex. Either it's not talked about sex at all, out of embarrassment or out of some wrong assumption that it is not an appropriate subject for, for Christians to talk about, but that's just no good at all. Because people are going to talk about it, people are going to find out about it, where are they going to get their news or information about it from? Most young people are getting their understanding of sex from pornography with its very distorted and debased view of sex. Others are being told that the orgasm is the be-all and end-all of human experience. I mean, it never helps when the church is silent on this particular issue. On the flip side, the church has talked about sex, but often in ways that just make things worse. A guy called Augustine, famous bishop, famously taught that original sin was passed through sexual intercourse. Modern Christian books, perhaps some you have read, teaching that the wife's function is sex is to relieve her husband's sexual burden. Or just the terrible guilt and pain that the church often puts on people wrongly simply for experiencing something that was designed by God to be a beautiful thing in the right context. So let's make sure we don't make the same mistake ourselves. We need to talk about sexual desire in the way God wants us to talk about it. That's why he's given us the Song of Songs. It's part of the wisdom literature in the Bible, the clues in the name. It's wisdom from God for us about this topic. Let's listen to him. Let's talk about it. Parents, let's be teaching our children 
about sexual desire, sexual intimacy within marriage in an age-appropriate way. Especially as they go through puberty. Do not be embarrassed about it. Share with other parents what they're saying, how they're saying, what has worked. What are the struggles? How do we help our children living in 21st century London life with all these other competing messages about what sex and sexuality is about? Help each other. Talk to each other. Talk to your kids. Give them wisdom. Prepare them for life in this city. All of us, let's be standing up for God's teaching in the Bible when it comes to sexual ethics. He is the inventor of it. He is the giver to us of sexual desire. Do you not want to hear what he says? He knows best. When? How? Who with? It's all here. Be wise. And let's exalt the joy and beauty of sexual intimacy within marriage. Not making people feel guilty about the desire itself but encouraging people to patiently wait for the right time, the right context, and reassuring people of forgiveness and cleansing and purity in Jesus Christ where they have fallen short. And just to be clear on this, while sexual desire in the right context is exalted, it is not idolized. Some of you will never get married. Some of you will make a decision to stay single for the sake of the gospel. Some of you will make a decision to be celibate because of unwanted sexual desires. Does that mean you are any less human? Absolutely not. For the simple reason that Jesus Christ was single and celibate and he is the most fulfilled human being to ever live. The orgasm is not the be-all and end-all of human experience. Knowing Jesus Christ is. So exalt sexual desire in the right context, but do not idolize it. Secondly, sexual desire should involve, should, character and chemistry. Both are important. I remember being told in one of the churches I used to go to that when it comes to choosing a spouse, men are far too picky. And quite simply, they should ask themselves three questions. Is she female? Is she Christian? Is she available? If so, marry her. I kid you not. That was the advice I was given. That was the wisdom. I even found myself saying that to a senior evangelical leader after I got engaged to Joe. Oh, well, she's female. She's, she's, she's Christian. <laughs> she's available. He just looked at me like I was some strange brain on a stick. There I was thinking, aren't I so wise and biblical? And you love her, Mark, don't you? Oh, yes, yes, absolutely. Of course I love her. I'm attracted to her. I desire her. I still do. Do not forget chemistry. Not the subject. Sexual attraction. Do you fancy her? Does she turn you on? And if you are in any doubt to the legitimacy of those two questions I have just asked, read on in the Song of Songs. 
Chemistry matters. On the flip side, character matters massively too. Doesn't matter how beautiful she is, real beauty is on the inside. In a love for Jesus, in a commitment to God's glory, in a growing Christ-likeness of character. Doesn't matter how handsome he is, how much money he has, what matters is a godly character, a man of integrity, someone who will love you sacrificially like Christ has loved the church, someone who will lead and nourish you in your Christian faith, someone you respect. Choose wisely. Character and chemistry. Choose wisely before you arouse and awaken the flames of love. Now, this is relevant for all of us, even if we never get married, simply because we can all pass on this wisdom to those who need it. But let me apply it a little bit more directly here to those who have been married and are married and have been married for a while, perhaps a few years. Do you still desire your spouse? Do you still want him to kiss you with the kisses of his mouth? Do you still want to carry her into the bedroom? Are the flames of romantic love still burning? If they are, give thanks to God for them. It's a wonderful thing. It is exalted. Keep it going. If not, why not talk about it this evening? And ask yourselves the question, why have things grown cold between us? Do you know what pleases and excites each other? Do you know how to honor and esteem each other? Do you know when and how is the best time and place to be sexually intimate with each other given all the busyness of life and working from home and children? I know if I'm too forward with the physical intimacy with Joe, she'll be very clear. Take the bins out, help me put the kids to bed, tidy your side of the room before you get any ideas. Because she can't relax otherwise, because that's how she feels loved by me, and it is good for me to know, especially if I haven't worked it out by now. Let me encourage you, spouses, to be having these sort of conversations with each other tonight. Thirdly, finally, sexual desire points us to Jesus Christ. You say, what, Mark? That sounds a bit weird. Sexual desire points us to Jesus Christ. How does that work? All of the Bible points us to Jesus Christ. It's no different with the Song of Songs. Do you know what Jesus' first miracle was in John's Gospel? His very first sign? Turning water into wine. 960 bottles worth of the most amazing wine you'll ever taste. Where did he do this first sign, this first miracle? At a wedding. Why? Why is this his first sign? Because Jesus Christ is the true bridegroom of the church. Because Jesus Christ is the true lover of our souls. Because Jesus is the one spouse who will never let you down. 
Perhaps you are unmarried, unable to say those words in verse 2. Your love is more delightful than wine. Perhaps you are married and you're still unable to say those words. Your love is more delightful than wine because marriage is not all that it was cracked up to be for you. But one day, every Christian believer will be able to say of their bridegroom, Jesus Christ, your love really is more delightful than wine. More delightful than the greatest earthly pleasure. And that experience starts right now. So let's desire Jesus Christ first and foremost before anyone or anything else. Human marriage was designed by God as a foreshadowing of something far greater. And that something far greater is the ultimate marriage between Christ and the church. So desire him, desire Jesus, esteem his name and praise him, the king, above all other kings. And actually it's having this desire for Christ at the heart of your life which will put everything else in perspective. If you desire Christ first and foremost, it stops you idolizing your spouse and crushing them under the weight of your own expectations. You'll start to love and serve them more. As Prince Philip was such a good example of with our queen. If you desire Christ first and foremost, it stops you idolizing the prospect of marriage if you are single here and end up being crushed by the weight of your own desires. So let the sexual desire we see in these opening verses of the Song of Songs point you to Jesus Christ, the true bridegroom and the only one in whom all sexual intimacy and desire and longing is ultimately satisfied. Well, let me pray that for us now. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the Song of Songs. We thank you for these opening verses. This might be a shock to us. It might have made us feel a bit uncomfortable in church hearing this and this woman's passionate plea and desire for sexual intimacy with her husband. But Lord, you've given us this word. It's from you. It's for our good. It's for our wisdom. Would we hear this? Would we go away? Would we talk it through with you, with close friends, with spouses if we're married? And please, Father, at a very deep level, would you help to move each and every one of us to have a deeper appreciation of your faithful, committed, unbreakable, incomparable love for us in Jesus Christ. We ask it for his name's sake. Amen.